For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how does outspoken filmmaker and social critic John Waters get into the Christmas spirit? His secret is he never loses it. The 8990 trip continues as father and daughter Larry and Lisa find themselves getting a little lost on the way to Yellowstone Park. And the legacy of Aldo Leopold, who is considered by many to be the father of modern wildlife ecology. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Filmmaker John Waters is the kind of celebrity that people either have very strong feelings for or they've never heard of him. His movies include the 1972 underground shocker Pink Flamingos and the 1988 dance comedy Hairspray that later became a Broadway musical. He's frequently sought out for his expertise on subjects like true crime, celebrity scandal, and the trashier side of American art. Just before celebrating his 70th birthday in 2014, Waters hitchhiked across America, talking to the famous and the homeless for his book, Carsick. The title of his latest book, Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Fifth Elder, says it all. But contrary to his cynicism, John Waters loves Christmas. He loves it so much, he undertakes an annual national tour to celebrate it. And John Waters is visiting Tucson next Monday evening. They gave me a chance to talk to one of my cinematic heroes and ask him how he felt about the new release of Polyester, a film that he designed to appeal as much to the nose as to the eyes and ears. Oh, I'm excited about it. Are you kidding? I talk about it on the show. Um, it's the most beautiful box cover I've ever had. And it looks <laughs> great. And they, you know, the new Odorama cards are definitely more abstract and artier than the other ones and stronger. <laughs> well, I haven't gotten my copy yet, but I'm really excited. I, I didn't even know the Odorama was there. I remember seeing you speak once in Dallas uh, many years ago and saying that you never thought that those at that point in time could ever be recreated. Well, I, I know it was the opposite. I thought when we were going to do new ones for this one that Basically, there would be 10 companies to pick from from now since 1980 because the only company that did it then was a 3M company. Now, not only does a 3M company not do it anymore, there was one in the whole country. If for some reason, that phase, that craze has passed, I guess. And for people who don't know what in the heck we're talking about, what are some of the scents that are offered on an Odorama card? Well, there's two good ones and all the rest are bad. There's... There's roses, and there's air freshener, and there's farts and dirty tennis shoes. So it goes from all extremes. The audience has way more fun with the bad smells. That's why the smell movies before polyester never worked, because they were all good smells. But the beauty of the whole thing, John, is that you were carrying on the fine work of William Castle and and other uh, showmen like him who would add special I still try to be a showman. I never end touring. You know, I'm always... uh, you know, I either have a new book out or I've got something that is basically keeping me in touch with my audience, and that's why I've been able to last 50 years. <laughs> well, when you went to compress a lifetime of knowledge into Mr. Know-It-All, what, were your, what was your guiding principle there? Well, I wanted to tell stories I hadn't told before, and in shock value, I told the stories of making the early movies, but with 
little hindsight because it was right around the time I made them. And then I wrote Role Models, which was about the people when I was young that gave me the freedom to believe I could have this career. And then on Mr. Know-It-All, I wanted to write a book to younger people, what I've learned, how I've negotiated through the minefields of Hollywood and the art world and the book world and personal appearances to end up with a career that I never had to really change. I never put out a movie in a cut I didn't want. All the books are still in print. Um, so to show you how to negotiate and that you can be, as I always joke, crazy and and kind of um, win. Well, you've always been free with sharing your experience and, and the wisdom that you've learned through living it. But I wondered if Carsick, you know, it seemed like in that book, and that, that adventure, you found yourself in the position of providing advice to a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people seem to be seeking advice and, and sort of pulling that out of you, whether you really wanted well, to do it or not. Yeah, except most of the people that picked me up hitchhiking had no idea who I was. One guy, I mean, a couple of people tried to give me money and wouldn't. When I would say I'm a filmmaker working a book, they just look like, uh uh-huh, sure, like you're a crazy <laughs> person who thinks you're a filmmaker, because why would I be hitchhiking in Kansas in the middle of a wheat field? So uh, the people were very lovely, kind of. I never had a scary ride. I was scared no one would pick me up when I stood there for 10 hours. But, um, you know, recently I drove across the country. I've driven across the country twice on my own since I did that. And it's so weird I would go past the exact corner that I stood on for 10 hours once, and it looked so benign and so nothing. And I remember being on that corner, being weather-beaten, and then like having to go back. And in Pink Flamingos at the end, they joke about, let's move to gas station lavatories and be the filthiest people alive. Well, I had to go in gas station lavatories to change, to wash and stuff. So it, it, it all was so different when I had my own car. But it was all a good experience. It was a, it was a literary stunt. Just like William Castle, the first stunt book I remember was Black Like Me, where the, which would never happen today. But it was a fairly good book against racism about where a white guy disguised himself as black and saw how badly he was treated. And that was a huge book when I was young. So the literary stunts I've done have certainly been hitchhiking across the country and taking LSD again, which I did in, uh, which I did in um, Mr. Know-It-All. <laughs> what a I... man has to do to get a book deal. <laughs> well, I think that the fact that a lot of people didn't know who you were was really the beauty of it, because it, it, it emphasized how much we look to others for insight and advice. It's almost the kindness like, of strangers, as Tennessee Williams said. Yeah. Right, but also the Kurt Vonnegut idea of that his whole life he felt like he'd been nudging people in the ribs, asking, "Hey, are you getting this too? Are you are you getting this too?" Yeah. So. I think people were lovely, and, and I think that's also the kind of people that pick up hitchhikers generally are in their second act, and they also have beaten something, or they have survived something, or they have been through quite a story otherwise, and that's why they have the empathy to pick up somebody that is, in a way, dangerous. It's uh, Although, you know, I picked up hitchhikers in my life, and I, when I was young, I hitchhiked everywhere, and nothing bad ever happened to me. There's an idea that I've been thinking about lately, remembering a time, you know, before the internet and before media was so accessible and you could just call up a re, you know review of a Kroger Bab movie online or something. And it, it was the idea that word of mouth hits happened, you know, within the span of a few weeks, a month, certainly a summer, movies would emerge as champions among people just purely through the idea of word of mouth. Yeah, that's and, almost impossible to do. Well, because when you walk out of a theater now, before the tail credits have gone off the screen, people have already texted if they hated it or liked it. 
used to be exploitation films never let reviewers see it and they would have to pay to go to the theater and the review would come out Monday so they'd get the first weekend without reviews. That doesn't work anymore. So the exploitation films that made all money, the audiences that made them hits didn't read reviews and they were also not hipsters. Later, those movies became cult items, but people that made Russ Meyer a millionaire didn't think his movies were funny. They thought they were sexy. It just brings back that era when I remember having kids tell me about movies that they had seen, like Last House on the Left or even um, Dawn of the Dead, and telling me things that I thought, no way, like that can't be. That's what exploitation was. Now Hollywood puts everything like that in all their movies. And that's why I kind of think that Joker is a great movie. And Todd started with a movie called Hated about Gigi Allen, and then he made a movie called Chicken Hawk about, about the Nambla, you know, the boy lover thing. So he started in the deep underground, and he ended making a fairly big-budget Hollywood movie that celebrates anarchy in possibly a dangerous way, and it's a giant hit. I give him the greatest award of all for pulling that off. Talk about a good negotiator. <laughs> Can you think of an example of some something that someone told you about when you were younger and it took you years or a while to track it down and whether or not your expectation uh, of the film and the well, reality matched it? I tell this story in the show, but I've told it before, but Mom and Dad, the movie that I always heard about Cobra Guy because the nuns told us we'd go to hell to see and I looked in the paper and it played for seven years in Baltimore. So I thought, what's up here? <laughs> what's up was they showed the birth of a baby. So I never got over that. People who know your work today may not realize that you were underground when that really meant being underground. How was it that you first got the inclination to realize that your message was being received and that people, you know, far outside of Baltimore were picking up on your films and having a great time? I had an audience right from the beginning. People said, you made such non-commercial movies. I don't know. Pink Flamingo has played in one theater in L.A. for 10 years. It sounds pretty commercial to me. I just came back from Australia where I did my This Filthy World, not my Christmas show, the other one. And the last city was Tanzania which is, as you know, an island off of Australia. It's the furthest from Baltimore you can get in the entire world. I go there, I walk in, and there's a grown man dressed as Edith. <laughs> which amazed me, you know, that it got that far, you know. And, and still, I mean, this is now, in 2019. So it was astounding to me, but in a, in a really great way. So I always had an audience. People came always, you know, it might in the beginning it was... You know, I would rent theaters, I would four-wall places, and then, but that was great because I'd get all the money and I'd pay my dad back who lent me the money. So all the people that I raised money for all my films privately, which was up to polyester, all got their money back, and they still get money. I still let them checks. Well, let's talk about your Christmas show before our time runs out. Yeah. And to ask you, in the time you've been doing it, has Christmas evolved uh, for you, or is you know, is it something that's that's beautifully and perfectly trapped in amber? Well, the Christmas thing, this is my 12th year. I mean, I'm in the middle of writing it right now. It's all new every year. And basically, it's how many years can I think of Christmas jokes? But I'm doing fine with it. And how many red outfits do I have to look for? I'm always looking for something new to wear that's red for the stage. But um, Christmas to me is, I always say I feel like a drag queen on Halloween. If it's Christmas, I'm working. But um, it is so much part of how I, you know, do run my life and my business and everything because I do it every year and this year, this year I think it's 16 cities has Christmas changed me I always like Christmas for real and I think that's why everything in my career is work because I like what I'm making fun of this year I think it's a little angrier Christmas because we're in a civil war and I think that reflects in my material 
but it's still humorous, and I make fun of the other side, too, because I make fun of myself in the beginning, and, and that's the first thing you have to offer up if you're ever going to make fun of somebody. You have to make fun of yourself first. A John Waters Christmas will contain plenty of holiday spirit for mature audiences at the Rialto Theater in downtown Tucson on Monday, December 9th, starting at 8 p.m. So far, during the 89-90 trip, we followed Lisa Schneble Heidinger and her father, Larry Schneble, from Prescott, Arizona, to Utah and points north. Before he retired in 1994, Larry was a well-known radio and TV broadcaster. His grandparents pioneered the area that is now Sedona, which was his grandmother's name. At his 90th birthday party, Larry said the only thing on his bucket list was to travel up U.S. Route 89 to the Canadian border, revisiting many places he has known since childhood along the way. This father-daughter journey would end up taking the Schneblies more than 3,000 miles round trip, and for Larry, it would be through almost 90 years of memories. U.S. 8990 trip, day four, Dateline, Utah, on the way to Yellowstone National Park. Yes, so let me get the car going and then we'll... Um... We started out with a bit of a misadventure. I missed North Logan, and so we took a road a little less traveled by. <laughs> Do you want to describe some of the stuff we saw? It was beautiful country. We had snow on both sides of the road, and it was a gorgeous drive. And we stayed last night in Ogden, Utah, and we're going to Yellowstone right now. Where neither of us has ever been and where we thankfully have a reservation tonight. Yeah, we got so squirreled around, and I think the, the navigational apps were partly to blame for that. But we were practically just driving in circles looking for 36 and finding 37 and being told to go 400 feet on Radio Station Road, which turned out to be a dirt track. It, was, it felt like the day the dopes went to Yellowstone. <laughs> and we're on our way. We leave Utah and cross a corner of Wyoming before coming into Idaho. This is very different country, endless variations of snow-covered mountains and pines. We decide to make today a long one in order to get to Yellowstone. It's fun to see places with names like Lewis and Clark or Jim Bridger, and others we've only read about or heard of. Would you tell the folks at home what we're listening to? That's the sound of the Snake River as it moves southwest and we're in a mountain pass in Wyoming. Does it remind you of anything you've seen before or not so much? The Colorado River sound, certainly. And we're on Highway 89 going northeast. 41 degrees. <laughs> but down in the water, it's probably a good deal less than 41 degrees. It would be cold. That was snow this morning, I imagine, much of it. We drive and drive some more. Finally, we get into Tetons National Park, looking forward to Yellowstone, until we get to a sign, road closed. What, road closed? How did we not know this? It means retracing our route and going into Yellowstone another way. 
This turns into a 12-hour drive day, and we go to bed exhausted. Then the heat in the room doesn't work, which means waking up cold every single hour to turn it back on, like having to feed a fire. And it's freezing. But a good breakfast always helps. And now we get to spend all day in Yellowstone. We find out we're not the only ones doing a bucket list trip. So are Kurt Jackson and his wife from Oklahoma. We ended up up here from <laughs> Miami, Oklahoma. You so, just started driving? Yeah. Well, we kind of talked about it for a few years. And yeah, we had a great time. We uh, traveled all the way from Miami. We hit uh, South Dakota, of course, went to the monument, you know, seen all that, uh, experienced it, you know. It was, it was just beautiful, beautiful. Is this your first time in this part of the Absolutely. country? Absolutely. Never been here. Got to see uh, three or four different states I've never seen. So, be 50 years old, so I've enjoyed it. <laughs> well, we're the Posies, and we're from the Panhandle of Florida, and we're on our bucket list trip. We've been to Grand Canyon, Painted Desert, Petrified Forest, uh, Mesa Verde National Park. We went all through Colorado, went to the Dinosaur Park in northern Colorado. It's cold, with lots of snow on the ground, but that doesn't keep away a crowd that is slowly growing, waiting for the most famous of all geysers, Old Faithful. Which is Old Less Faithful. The eruptions are not as consistent as they used to be. A few false starts, then... That's pretty high. What do you guess? 125. Okay, yeah. 300 feet high. The top of the steam. It's like the Grand Canyon. It looks like the pictures, doesn't it? It does. It's old faithful, sure enough. Wow. After old faithful, we drive toward Mammoth Hot Springs Lodge at the north end of the park. It's funny to pass so many springs and small geysers that you almost get used to them. Next is Gibbon Falls. And it's a drop of, it looks like, about 65 feet in a series of steps over a cliff edge. We get to the hotel. Unlike last night's Old Faithful Snow Lodge, which is what they call parkitecture, huge beams, logs, and timbers. Mammoth Hot Springs is more Victorian, like something in the Adirondacks. We unpack, head out to dinner, just as it begins to snow. Yes, snow. We're seated under a set of soaring windows. After we order, as if they've been hired by central casting and cued to appear, two buffalo come running onto the lawn outside. They seem to be playing, making circles under the falling flakes. It's the image of the trip that will stay with me the longest, I think. The 8990 trip will continue next week as the Schneblies compare the big sky country in Montana to the Arizona skies that they know so well. You can read Lisa Schnebly Heidinger's travel diary and see photos from the journey on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Next, producer David Fenster brings us a look at the legacy of Aldo Leopold. Today, he is considered by many to be the father of wildlife ecology. He started his career with the U.S. Forest Service in Springerville, Arizona, in 1909. We'll hear how that experience would influence Leopold's relationship to the environment 
for the rest of his life. Looking through Aldo Leopold's archives, I came across several burned items. A charred driver's license, a journal with blackened edges. It turns out they were the contents of Leopold's pockets when he died. He was fighting a fire on his property and suffered a fatal heart attack. Leopold is best known for his book, A Sand County Almanac. It was published in 1949, shortly after his death. He also proposed the first wilderness area in the country. It was clear to him that wild places were becoming endangered by human activity and should be set aside. Some call him the father of wildlife ecology, but long before that, Leopold was a forest assistant at the Apache National Forest in the Arizona Territory. This was Leopold's first job. He was stationed in Springerville, and Arizona wouldn't become a state for another few years. I'd learned about him in college, and, and in fact, you know, I still have my, my original Leopold Sand County Almanac. My name is Russ Wynn, and I am a member of the Board of Directors of the White Mountain Conservation League. I love a lot of the essays in Sand County Almanac. I think the one that, that's probably the deepest for me is uh, the land ethic. Um, and in this, he talks about humans' relationship with a wild environment and how he sees, at least, we are in the middle of a transformation. We go from feeling that we control environment, that we own environment, to the point where we say, no, we are part of the land. We are part of the environment. And that is a radical transformation because the difference between owning and controlling something and being a part of something is huge. And that's what he really started with, with this book in particular. His time here colored the way he viewed things. It stayed with him forever. Every living thing and perhaps many a dead one as well, pays heed to that call. To the deer, it is a reminder of the way of all flesh. To the pine, a forecast of midnight scuffles and of blood upon the snow. To the coyote, a promise of gleanings to come. To the cowman, a threat of red ink at the bank. To the hunter, a challenge of fang against bullet. Yet behind these obvious and immediate hopes and fears, there lies a deeper meaning, known only to the mountain itself. Only the mountain has lived long enough to listen objectively to the howl of a wolf. Leopold wrote this in his essay, Thinking Like a Mountain. There are no audio recordings of Aldo Leopold's voice, so Duncan Moon is reading excerpts from Leopold's writing. We were eating lunch on a high rim rock, at the foot of which a turbulent river elbowed its way. What was literally a pile of wolves writhed and tumbled in the center of an open flat at the foot of our rim rock. In those days, we had never heard of passing up a chance to kill a wolf. In a second, we were pumping lead into the pack. We reached the old wolf in time to watch a fierce green fire dying in her eyes. I realized then, and have known ever since, 
that there was something new to me in those eyes, something known only to her and to the mountain. I was young then and full of trigger itch. I thought that because fewer wolves meant more deer, that no wolves would mean hunter's paradise. Since then, I have lived to see state after state extirpate its wolves. I have watched the face of many a newly wolfless mountain. Such a mountain looks as if someone had given God a new pruning shears and forbidden him all other exercise. The cowman who cleans his range of wolves does not realize that he is taking over the wolf's job of trimming the herd to fit the range. He has not learned to think like the mountain. Hence we have dust bowls and rivers washing the future into the sea. Leopold argued that there is a community of life to which humans belong and that we are not intended to dominate that community. In his essay, Land Ethic, he writes, A thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends otherwise. In his essay, Escudilla, Leopold tells the story of the killing of the last grizzly bear in Arizona. There are still no grizzly bears here, but the wolves are finally back. At the end of his essay, Thinking Like a Mountain, Leopold writes, We all strive for safety, prosperity, comfort, long life, and dullness. The deer strives with his supple legs, the cowman with trap and poison, the statesman with pen, the most of us with machines, boats, and dollars. But it all comes to the same thing, peace in our time. A measure of success in this is all well enough, and perhaps is a requisite to objective thinking. But too much safety seems to yield only danger in the long run. Perhaps this is behind Thoreau's dictum, in wilderness is the salvation of the world. Perhaps this is the hidden meaning in the howl of the wolf, long known among mountains, but seldom perceived among men. That story was produced and narrated by David Finster. You can watch it as it appeared on Arizona Illustrated now at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.